Welcome to Vancouver Opera Offstage. I'm your host, Les Dalla, Chorus Director and Associate Conductor at Vancouver Opera. Join me for this bi-weekly podcast as we connect with opera experts, artists, staff, and others to explore the world of opera on and off the stage. We are honored to share our stories on the unceded homelands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Good afternoon and welcome to the podcast. It is my distinct pleasure to be speaking today with Jim Wright, who was the longest serving general director in the history of Vancouver Opera. 17 seasons from 1999 to 2016. Jim lives here in Vancouver and I ran into him a couple of times over the course of the summer and invited him to be on this show. And I'm so delighted that today he is my guest. So welcome, Jim. Thank you. It's a pleasure. It's an honor to be interviewed like this and by you. I'm looking forward to it. Well, that's very sweet of you to say. I feel like I am the one who has the honor. I didn't realize that Irvin Gutman was just behind you. He had two separate tenures. The first one, I believe, was 14 seasons long, and then a second one, which was two years long. But even with those two, you came out on top. And of course, Irving was, you know, the founder of most of the opera companies in Western Canada. So that's really saying a lot. So I have very fond memories of your tenure, Jim, and a lot of great shows that happened under your watch. And I can't wait to hear you tell us all about them. Well, first of all, I wanted to say I took that final year so I could beat Irving. You know, it's not easy when one's predecessor remains in town. Local doesn't go run another opera company or retire to the farm or something. But Irving made that very comfortable and very easy. He and I had a really good relationship. We had an agreement that he could tell me anything he wanted to, what went well and what didn't go well and any mistakes he thought I'd made, as long as it was just our conversation. And I think he honored that. And I certainly respected his judgment and opinions. And it was a very strong and meaningful relationship. I remember it being nothing but amicable. And I mean, very big of both of you to be able to have that relationship. As you say, that is a tough situation. Thanks to the wonders of Facebook. As it turns out, today is Irving's birthday. Oh, it is. Oh. Apparently, yes. I've seen some people post and saying that hope you're celebrating wherever you are. And of course, this will not go live on Irving's birthday, but people should know that it's just, again, yeah. again one of these nice coincidences. So cheers to Irving for starting this company in the first place. Right. <laughs> Jim, we'll go back in time and go through your journey through opera, but I'd love to hear what you've been up to over the past couple of years. Well, when I retired in the summer of 16, I right away went on the board of directors of the Van City Community Foundation, which was a lot of new stuff for me, social service things that I had long been interested in, of course, but got to know so much more. And I also was asked to join the TELUS Vancouver Community Board. And I served on that for three years, completed a term, and that was terrific. I learned so much more about so many more arts organizations than I did you know, we get rather myopic, I think, in our field and our subfield. I knew a lot about what was going on with the major arts organizations in town, the Symphony, the Ballet, Arts Club, others. But I didn't know much about lots of small organizations. And I learned so much about how many wonderful things were happening in the arts across the Lower Mainland in particular. And of course, then that was by serving on the Arts and Culture Subcommittee. But then we also got to review and listen to other committees talk about the environment, health, education. So it was a really wonderful education for me in all sorts of fields. So I did that for a few years. 
And then I served on the National Arts Center Creation Fund Advisory Committee for two or three years. That got to be a bit of a burden only in travel. I was the farthest west by far of any member, and it was always in Ottawa or Montreal. Two days of travel, two hotel nights for a four-hour meeting. Now I'm sure they're doing them all on Zoom. And I've joined the Nature Conservancy Board in BC and at a small organization called Global Partners Institute, which brings international high school students here to study. And I'm very pleased that just in September, I joined the Vancouver Chamber Choir Board. I didn't want to be very involved in arts organizations for a while. I just wanted to take a breath and step back a little bit, but found that it was time to do something back in the arts and in music. And so I'm brand new and learning a lot more about choral music, which I love. So that and a lot of reading and a lot of walking and until last March, a lot of travel and just really cooking, eating, (laughs) all the things you can do in retirement. That sounds like a full menu indeed. Chamber Choir is lucky to have you. Nice to know that you also are reconnected to the art scene here. I know this is their 50th anniversary and, you know, the opera's 60th, Bach Choir's 90th this year. It's this very strange year, 2020. Can I stay on that topic for a moment just to ask you, I mean, when you sit back and read the news and see what's happening in the opera world, specifically across the world, what are some of the things that you think about? Well, the sad things we all think about is the loss of employment, of course, and the lack of safety nets that so many individuals have, independent contractors, gig workers, and how very, very tough it is. And away from the individuals, the loss of the creative work and being able to see it in the way we'd like to see it live and audiences, it's almost unbelievably sad. I think when the Met announced canceling its whole 2021 season, I think none of us were surprised, but it was like a punch in the gut. It was sort of like the biggest, realist piece of information that told us how difficult things were. On the plus side, the creativity that people are showing as individuals, as organizations, Vancouver Opera is being very creative and very proud and pleased with what Tom and you, the company is doing, the support it has from the board. That's happening all over North America. I think some of the new ways of presenting work and programs to audiences will stay. And I'm sure as companies get more and more technologically savvy, it will grow. And there will be new ways of doing things and better ways of doing things. You can't keep artists down. You know, they're going to create. They're going to create in new ways and traditional ways. And the art form will survive. It may look a little different. And I think that's just fine. I think that this is causing something to happen more quickly than it was going to be happening anyway. With traditional works, with issues of diversity and equity, this has really put that in the foreground. And I think that's really good. And finally, I think that Opera America and Opera.ca, which has a new name, Opera in Canada, I think perhaps is their rebrand. I think the service organizations are doing a really good job of keeping people connected and working positively until we get through this. For the time being, let's time travel. Can we go back? I would love, love, love to hear your personal story, your journey as to how you got involved in opera in the first place. Of course, you were the general director of both opera in Anchorage and in Charlotte before Vancouver Opera. So that's an impressive tenure of three different companies across the continent. How did that all happen in the first place? Well, the first thing is it's so surprising to me how long ago it all was. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm coming to grips with my age. You know, every once in a while I'll think, oh, something was 50 years ago. And then I'll think about myself as a teenager and what 50 years before that was and how old fashioned I thought it was and how out of date it was. And now I'm doing that with my own life. Yes, I had a degree in theater, BFA in acting, and I acted for two or three years. I had no opera background at all. My parents were teachers and journalists, lots of theater, lots of literature, but opera just wasn't in the cards. It was three or four hours away to get to an opera company and musicals. Yes, all of that, but not opera. I got started in opera having seen only a La Boheme in my life by going to work for the opera company in Kansas City. I needed a job. It was supposed to last about six weeks in a grunt, a runner, production assistant. And that six weeks job turned into a four-year stint, the last two of which I was the number two in the company. It was an art form and a business waiting for me to discover it, I think. I'd had a lot of piano and French horn and sang in choirs, and music was very important to me, as was theater. And I seemed to have a bit of a bent for the management side of things, which always surprised my mother because I could never balance my paper route money on Saturday afternoons. Never, never always a problem. So I was at Kansas City four years, and I wanted to say a couple of things about Kansas City and Tulsa. In Kansas City, I learned about vision from the general director and sticking to it. It was a company that sang everything in English and did an American opera every year out of its five. And whether one agreed with those tenets or not, the general director believed in them, got the board to believe in them, and stuck to them for a long time. And that was an important thing for me to learn, to not only have a vision, but to be able to communicate it and make it happen. And the other thing there was I learned how to manage an orchestra because Kansas City had its own orchestra as well. So I was there four years and then I went to Tulsa. I learned what leadership isn't from some experiences there, but also worked with some great singers like Leona Mitchell and Hermano Amaro, conductors like Emerson Buckley, directors like Lakshmi Mansouri. And one thing that I thought of as I was thinking about the past in regards to this, when I was in Tulsa, we also had to replace a Marshallin in DeRozan Cavalier on very short notice, very, very similar circumstances. Our Marshallin didn't know the role. And our general director snagged a woman who was doing to do AIDA in San Diego, but she didn't like the direction. So she left in a huff back to Europe and we caught her at LaGuardia between flights and turned her around and she came to Tulsa and sang. And it was marvelous. She did a marvelous job. So it's a very, very parallel story to what I'm sure we'll talk about a little later. That was quite an experience. So those are the two companies earlier and then on to Anchorage and the rest. Anchorage was lots of fun. I really enjoyed it. I mean, helping build a company in Anchorage, a town of 250,000, was a job. It was hard work. I bet it was. How long were you in Anchorage? Uh, five years. About five years. I didn't mean to sound like I'd built a company. Sorry. The company existed and it was founded by a wonderful woman who was music in Alaska at the universities and choruses and professional things. So I joined a company, but it's work to build it. It's work to keep it going. I remember, you know, the first time we sold out a production and there were scalpers out front of the theater and that was exciting. And that's also, I was part in the arts community of building a new performing arts center there and in Charlotte both, which were wonderful experiences and reminds me of how disappointing it is that we couldn't get the changes made at the Queen Elizabeth that we all knew needed to be made and wanted to be made. But being a part of building a new center and speaking up for your art form and making sure the symphony didn't get everything it wanted and we didn't get anything. 
was a real challenge to the local cultural community because we really had to work together and make it work for four or five major organizations plus smaller ones. How many productions a year happened in Anchorage? I think three. Oh, wow. Either three or four. It was more than two. <laughs> I think it was three. That sounded very zen in response. <laughs> <laughs> How many is more than two? We had a small theater of about 900 seats. And when they built the new Performing Arts Center, they built a 2,500-seat Lyric Theater. And we lobbied hard and got, I think it was a 1,100-seat Lyric Theater as well. And we did almost all of our work in the 1,100-seat theater, which was absolutely, it was perfect. Because again, 250,000 people does not create an audience. We would have done only one performance. So we were able to do three or four performances in that size theater. And it was a joy. The government support was more like it is here than it was in most of the states. So there was great city support and great state government financial support. And finally, at least at the time I was there in the 80s, it had the per capita highest level of education of any state in the country because of the government employees, social services, teachers, oil industry. So it was a very educated population who came from all kinds of places, including Europe. Strong corporate support really, really helped. Well, it made all the difference, actually. And the company is still thriving. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a resource-based economy, right? It's like Texas or, to a degree, B.C. So when oil prices are good, Zoom, the money's there, everybody's happy, the population's there. When oil prices crash, which they did while I was there, they went from around $30 a barrel to about $8 a barrel in a few months. Every dollar change, I think, reflected like $100 million in the economy or something. So up and down and up and down. When times are good, it's fine. When times aren't as good, it suffers more than many. But it's still producing a couple of shows a year, I think. Oh, well. And from there, you went to Charlotte? Yeah. Yeah. Crisscrossing the country is what I've been doing. And tell us a little bit about Charlotte. Well, it's a very conservative town in all sorts of ways. Socially conservative politically pretty conservative. It was surprisingly well integrated. It was a city that in the 70s in the South decided it was going to do something about the situation. And it was one of the first cities to integrate its schools to business leaders decided one day, literally one day over lunch, that they were going to integrate the restaurants. And they did it by doing it. And so there were a lot of positive things about the city, but it was a conservative place. One of the first questions that one was asked as a newcomer to the community was, what church do you go to? It wasn't what country club. Well, that was the second question, what country club? Because the church played such an important role socially, whether it was Presbyterian or Methodist or Episcopalian or Baptist, didn't matter. They were big churches. You identified with one of them. Lots of your friends were from one of them. I always thought that was such an interesting question. What church do you go to? There was an assumption there would be one, right? <laughs> I had a major personal crisis to deal with during my tenure there, after I'd been there two or three years, something like that. And that was I had to fight against a bias that a gay man could run an opera company. And I had to sit across the desks of bank vice presidents and other people and board members and talk about whether I could do that, whether it was appropriate that I do that. So this was about 1991 or two in the New South. You know, I think in those days, it was okay for an artistic director to be gay or 
a choreographer, performer, designer, but something about the person leading the organization and doing the corporate fundraising and that sort of thing, they felt it wasn't appropriate or wasn't doable or wasn't right. I won, and some of my naysayers ended up leaving the board, and we thrived. And after that, the next seven years or so were great with the board. We had a wonderful relationship after getting through that, which I think was really spearheaded by just two or three people who didn't like me. (laughs) But, you know, that's a very maturing thing in one's life. I had lots of friends in other places who said, well, why don't you just go, leave? Why are you putting up with it? And I would say, because I'm not going to let them win, you know? One of the major examples of this happening before, and I guess I'll try to say this without names, one of the biggest opera companies in the world had a leadership change, and the person everyone thought would and should get the job didn't get the job. And it was pretty widely recognized it was because he was gay. Now, this was 15 years before my experience. So that person left and went to another opera company somewhere else and had a very good career. So it was not that unusual that something like that would happen, but it was certainly a defining thing for me. Well, that was almost 30 years ago, and certainly things have changed a lot since then. I'm very wary of comparisons, therefore, as I feel such and such. I do think from that period of time in my life and career, it gives me a little more understanding of the frustration of women in our field who didn't even get the chance, hardly ever, to take that step to the leadership of companies. Now, there's still not enough women running opera companies in North America, but there are certainly, I don't know, there's probably 10 or 12 now, I'm guessing. So it's different than it was. But I don't pretend to understand the feelings and understand all that because of my own experience. But it gives me a little feeling of being excluded for something that had absolutely nothing to do with ability. And as you alluded to earlier, this year too, I think the world is waking up to also indigenous Black persons of color and how when you look at our industry in particular, it's not nearly as diverse as it needs to be and should be. So yeah, that's another part of what I think this push is, as you point out, we're moving more quickly on that than we would have probably otherwise without, and not just the pandemic, but all the horrid things that had happened, particularly in the States. But let's not leave Canada out of the controversy here. Yeah, of course. There were good things in Charlotte. We did a wonderful, big, non-traditional AIDA that scared everybody to death and was a great success. Uh, We did the company's first Strauss. We did Zalame. And I think the most important thing from my perspective and that I carried, I believe, into working in Vancouver was we produced The Crucible, Robert Ward's piece based on Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible. And really by accident, given our planning horizon in this business, we ended up producing The Crucible during the same time that there were some civic upheavals in Charlotte having to do, oh, with city councilors creating some mass hysteria and some issues over, you know, the gays are going to take over the world, <laughs> kind of stuff from the conservative churches. You know, it was a kind of a time of foment in the community. And we produced The Crucible. And what we did with it was create a whole series of community engagement programs talking about mass hysteria, inequity, tied in various subjects. We had the minister of the largest Protestant downtown church, a liberal man, do presentations. And the whole culturally aware town sat up and took notice. 
And it was a huge achievement for us. And months later, we were being lauded for doing the kind of work that addressed issues of community. And I thought it would work, but then it really did work. And it really pushed the company into another realm of recognition from cultural leaders and from lots of people. It was very exciting, very exciting. Let's talk about Vancouver. There's 17 years of history to talk about. Can you give us a guided tour of your tenure as general director of Vancouver Opera and highlights? I want to start by saying it's the best work I ever had. Best relationship with boards I've ever had all the way through. Boards changed completely, of course, once or twice during that time, completely rolled over. But always very, very strong, positive working relationship with the board. Good staff, dedicated people. I think the work we did was good and important. And it's Vancouver. What a lovely place. It's just the best work by far in my mind, in my heart, in my daily happiness, in my pride with the company and our place. So I want to start with that. My list of favorites skews a bit to the contemporary and the unusual. And I don't think that's unusual for a general director or an artistic director. I remember the guy I replaced in Charlotte in his interviews talked about his favorite works were Carlisle Floyd pieces he'd produced that nobody attended, you know, so. uh, (laughs) But Mice and Men, I love the piece to begin with. And the company had put off producing it once or twice for various reasons, financial and otherwise. But we pushed ahead with it, uh, I think in 2002. And it was the beginning of our community engagement work. And I remember gathering a few staff people around the table and one or two board members, including the wonderful Arlene Gladstone, and putting out this idea. And I just got these looks back like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And I finally just had to say, trust me, you know, this is going to work. We'll make it work. And it did work. We had a whole bunch of organizations doing all sorts of different things in their own lives, working with migrant farm workers, working in mental health all sorts of organizations that we put this big program together around Mice and Men. And that was a wonderful experience for the company. And I think it set us on a new path. And I think it helped us all realize this doesn't need to be about museum pieces. Even the museum pieces don't have to be museum pieces. And it just gave a whole new energy to the organization that has remained. And it was great. It was a very important milestone for me and for the company. Yeah. That was the first one on my list. Of course, there was the whole series at the Carnegie Center through Jim Green. I mean, what a fantastic thing. How did that come about? Well, Jim Green was on the board when I got here. And I think he saw a sucker come to town that he could get right to right early. And he got me involved in downtown Eastside projects and took me on tours where everybody, everybody knew him. He'd walk down the street. Hey, Jim, how are you? And he'd know them. And We toured housing projects. There was a short time, there was a a community bank on the corner of Maine and Hastings that was his idea. And he made the organization realize that we couldn't dismiss or ignore any part of the town, geographically or otherwise. And Doug Tuck was a huge proponent of all of this work. And after the first time or two we went to the Carnegie, he took that on. And before every show, the Wednesday night dress rehearsal, he was at the Carnegie Center talking about the opera, giving a preview, giving out tickets. And then those folks would come to the Thursday dress rehearsal and did it for years and years and years. And that program expanded into the Opera Speaks, which we did get to public library. And one of the things about the Opera Speaks program that I so appreciated and felt good about was 
We had not only season ticket holders and single ticket buyers and guild members and board members attending these. We also had folks from the downtown east side that we recognized from other programs who really cared about what we were doing. And audience was very mixed in, I don't know, an education level, but certainly in economic levels. And that was great. And some of them drew specialized kind of audiences, depending on what the program was. But there was always a good mix of people there. Well, there were so many things that started under your tenure. Also, the Yolanda M. Ferris Young Artist Program. I'm guessing that our guests are going to want to hear, you know, your top five or top 10 shows as well. But let's keep them waiting for that. Maybe some of the behind the scenes things like the Ferris family's very generous gift. That's something that we talked about. I know that was on the table for years before it could finally become a reality. Maybe take us through how that finally came to be. Well, huge credit goes to Tom Wright for that after he joined the company. And he just wouldn't let that go. He was like a dog with the proverbial bone. I mean, he just nagged me and nagged me about starting that program. And I wasn't again it. I think I must have had other priorities at the time that were taking most of my brain space. And I'd never had a young artist program before. So I was probably a bit scared or, you know, not knowing how to go about it. Tom really did the pushing. And coincidentally, the Ferrises were wanting to do something major for the company after being long-term supporters. And she'd been president of the board at one point. And their interest in particular was developing talent amongst young artists. She was involved with UBC, music department, the opera department, to an extent, not as much as the opera company because of training young artists. So those two ideas just sort of came together in a parallel fashion. And when Tom had done his research and presented a good, strong case for this working for the company and what it would mean for the organization and the field, in the Canadian field especially, we married them. We got them together. You know, the Ferrises, they didn't want to underwrite three Verdi operas, or they didn't want to be the sponsor of the lobby space or something. They wanted something dynamic, lasting, that would be influential to the field. And this was exactly the kind of thing that they were very, and still are, very interested in. We've lost Yolanda, which is sad, but the family is still involved with the company and still supportive of our work. So they just kind of moved together. And then also at that time, Tom was pushing hard for a facility, for an opera center. And those two things, you know, he just drove me crazy with talking about them all the time. You really couldn't have had the Young Artist Program without the facility. So he got to work on the facility as well and did the research and went out to buildings with realtors and came back with leads to follow. And we ended up on McLean Drive very happily in the O'Brien Center for Vancouver Opera. And that was the third piece of that that allowed us to go forward. It was a very, very exciting time for the company, time of real growth and major donor support to have the center from the O'Briens, of course, but lots of other people at lots of levels of giving to make that possible. So all of a sudden, within a year or two, all came together. And again, That's one of the reasons I'm so pleased that Tom was appointed general director, because, you know, it's kind of behind the scenes job in lots of ways outside of the company. But two of the major things that happened with the company and built its success was the Young Artist Program and the O'Brien Center. I think we'd have gotten there eventually, but I'm not sure when. (laughs) It's really nice of you to acknowledge that. And I agree. I often say 
to friends and colleagues, you know, the people who are working behind the scenes like Tom and Adrienne Frears and, you know, people who are in those administrative positions. I know what fuels me. The chance to perform and do this is what is the big payoff. But for people who are behind the scenes that way and, you know, are mastermind, put together a great cast or organize these teams and all of these projects and initiatives, you don't get to go out on stage and then do your thing and get the applause. It has to come from a very different place. So, yeah, I find myself more and more being just so grateful for all of the people who work behind the scenes like that. That is so true. That is so true. And if one doesn't remember that in leading an organization, it's not going to work. You know, it'll work for a while. But if you can't make a team proud of what they're doing and grateful for being recognized for what they do, you're just going to churn. You're going to churn staff and spin your wheel. So it's not only the right thing to do, it's a smart thing to do, you know. It's the W-R-I-G-H-T thing to do. (laughs) I remember when Tom had just joined and Bruce Wright was the chair of the board. And I used to tell people, three rights, don't make a wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I didn't know that. It's a very good phrase. It's a good phrase. One of the other things, of course, too, quite obvious, was you were the one who appointed Jonathan Darlington, mm. music director, mm. and who is still with the company as music director emeritus. And I know that you have been friends and great colleagues, and what a tremendous partnership and a great gift to the city and to the opera orchestra and to just the world here in Vancouver to have had Jonathan. We are so fortunate that his agent of the day at that time stopped in the office. I think he was managing Bramwell as well. And so just paid a call. He knew we were going to be doing a search and he recommended Jonathan Darlington. I'd never heard of him, which is not about Jonathan. It's about what I knew and didn't know about what was happening in Europe. So I liked what I heard him talk about. And then I began to do some investigation and found out the work he was doing and how people felt about him. We struck an advisory committee to help me choose the music director. It's kind of a tricky thing, but The board and I agreed that the decision would be mine on who would be the music director. And I assured the board, I said, you have to trust me that I will listen to you and listen to the committee and I won't do anything weird. (laughs) So we had a couple of orchestra players, a chorister, a couple of people from the community, a couple of board members. And we ended up with a list, I think, of six people. And I think people that are going to listen to this, I want them to realize how long that takes because each of those candidates has to be slotted in to one of four productions a year. So it would be very surprising to hire somebody in the first year of the search because you had to work on our schedule and the candidate's schedule to find a slot that they could come. And I think Jonathan was maybe third or fourth in getting scheduled and getting here. And after everybody, after they came, the orchestra and the chorus rated them and the committee discussed them. And so it was a, a good vetting process. So when Jonathan came, it was for the marriage of Figaro. And the message from the chorus and orchestra was, you can stop right now. This is it. And it was like overwhelming support for him. I certainly liked him. I liked him as a gentleman. I liked his talents. I liked his style. So we stopped it. And I think there must have been two more. Let's say there were two more. One understood and came and did the gig anyway, and had since returned, I think, a couple of times. And one said, well, I'm not coming. So (laughs) that's fine. That's his choice. So it was just an overwhelming vote for Jonathan. And boy, no looking back. It's hard to imagine the last 20 years without Jonathan. I know the orchestra still feels that way. Yeah, agreed wholeheartedly. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel very fortunate to have been 
mentored by Jonathan to be his assistant over so many shows and years and learned so much from him as a musician, as a human being. Someone who really cares very deeply about, you know, the community as well, which reflects in his music making, of course. Well, one thing that I was very pleased in his style is nurturing the music staff. You, Kinza, others that have been a part of the organization and building a really great team that has stuck together. I can't imagine the last 20 years without him. I miss him. Talking about all the shows, when one does the math, when you came and when you finished, we were doing four main stage productions a year, right? I think actually my first year was five, but we immediately changed that to four. Oh, that's right. That is and right. four performances instead of five. So that's a lot of shows. Like 65 to 70, 15 of which were Bohems. <laughs> <laughs> now, hardly. Come on. <laughs> Do you have a top 10 list or do you I have some? Oh, great, great, great. Right okay. I'm going to get the popcorn. <laughs> okay. Well, in chronological order, sort of. Mice and Men, Naomi's Road, creating a new work based on Joy Kagawa's work and Ramon Alone writing the music and Ann Hodges, the libretto. It was a really wonderful experience for everyone. And touring it across the province and into the state of Washington and a little bit, I think, in Alberta and at the National Arts Center. And again, the response we got from the Japanese Canadian audience was so gratifying for us all. And more than once, I remember a person coming up to me after a performance, usually somebody in their maybe 20s or 30s, with tears in their eyes, literally, he said, thank you for telling the story of my family. They won't tell it to me, basically. This is one of those things that many families just didn't talk about that horrid experience. So getting those kinds of responses were great. And again, it was so embraced by the board. The whole idea of doing this was very gratifying. I would say next for me was Fanchula, La Fanchula de West, Girl of the Golden West. It's my favorite Puccini opera, hands down. And every once in a while, I'll find something online of somebody basically saying the same thing and somebody who knows what they're talking about more than a musicologist or a conductor or somebody, you know, all the reasons Fanchula is, in their opinion and mine, hands down the best Puccini opera. Mary Jane Johnson, Renzo Zulian, John Fanning, who conducted Jacques Lacombe. It's just a marvelous opera and it's not by any means an audience favorite. We didn't sell well at all, but that's the way it is. The Strauss Cycle, you mentioned before, those four operas. You know, we talked about there is a certain competition amongst opera companies that are relatively close together, but not trying to go head to head with Seattle, say, on Wagner, because there's no way that we could put the resources into it that they put into it in any number of ways. But let's us do our own big thing. And I think it was, and you would know this better than I, but I think it was such a growth experience artistically for the company, the orchestra, for chorus, for Copper Mario roles, for Scenic, big old production from COC. David Gately did a lovely job staging it, and Jonathan conducted it. And we all remember it, those close to the company. We had the similar situation that I had in Tulsa. We had to replace Deborah Voigt. Very, very late in the game. And cast about trying to find a Marshallin. And having just said something about Seattle, I will say Spate Jenkins, who's the general director in Seattle at that time, could not have been more helpful. You know, I was getting two calls a day from him, two or three calls a day. Have you tried so-and-so? Is so-and-so available? 
One call he called and said, I've just talked to Pamela, who was the then general director in San Francisco. Pamela suggested you talk about somebody. To, so he was spreading his large net out trying to help us find a marshal. And that was very collegial of him. And I always appreciated that very much. Jonathan came up with Carol Wilson, whom he had heard perform in Germany. And she came in afterwards. We heard a lot of good words about how we dealt with it. And Carol was so wonderful, as was everyone, that it was like, Deborah who? And I don't mean that meanly. And I've seen Deborah since then, and we've spoken, and, you know, bygones are bygones. But Carol wowed everybody, and it just was soon, it wasn't a thing at all. It was all about Rosen Cavalier, not about the impending doom. <laughs> and then we went on with the others. Electra Ariadne and Zolome. The First Nations Magic Flute was another transformative piece for the organization and took us to a new level of self-awareness and conscience and community. It was not an easy process. It shouldn't be. It had to be respectful, paced accordingly, and it had to be something that everybody had input. And it wasn't meant to be, nor was it, Vancouver Opera is doing this and we'd like you to have a part or do this or do that. It's we together are going to create, we chose Magic Flute because you can set Magic Flute about anywhere. It's been set in the desert. It's been set in the moon. It's been set in the Amazon. And so I felt confident in talking with the staff that why not? And Randy Smith, who preceded Tom and who tragically died very young of cancer, was instrumental in getting that going, having meetings, sitting in a circle with an invited group of First Nations educators and artists. And Carrie Newman was one of them and talking about this piece. And there were one or two tenets, if you will, from the very beginning. It was going to be Mozart. It was going to be Mozart's music. We weren't fiddling with that. That was basically it, I guess. <laughs> you know, Everything else was open for discussion. Robert McQueen spent three years with us working on this piece. He had experience with a similar kind of work in Thailand. We ended up creating a new libretto so that we could insert certain Hokanian words that we couldn't do under copyright English version. So Robert wrote a new version. We could include language. We got signed permission from various chiefs to do certain things. And we followed all sorts of interesting protocol and costume designer. One of the First Nations guy whose name has just flown out of my mind. He's a well-known artist, lives on the island. He did a whole series of costumes based with permission on different Native bands' designs. And it all came together, and it was a hugely moving experience, I think, for everyone. And again, just changed the company in lots of ways. And then it was reproduced in 2012 with much better effects, lighting, and visuals. One of the highlights of my career, for sure. Nixon. Nixon's next. There's not much to say about that from my perspective, except it just blew my mind. It was the technology and projections that were used, Michael Cavanaugh's staging, the orchestra, Kinza's work, great performers. What an amazing production. And then for it to go to San Francisco and Kansas City and Dublin and Stockholm was a real feather in it for the company, I think. Just an astounding production. And that being followed by Lillian, like six months later, a world premiere, the company's first big main stage world premiere, Estacio Morel, Judy Forrest, and others. Another astounding experience, leading through and letting the right people be in charge of things, 
But leading through that year of Nixon and Lillian during the Olympic time was quite exciting. It was really exciting. And I took it on personally to make sure that there were bums in seats. And I must have done 20 presentations of each of those productions to anyone who let me in the door. Rotary clubs at eight o'clock in the morning, study clubs at six o'clock at night. And, you know, the staff put together such wonderful materials for me to take out and show video clips and PowerPoint productions and all of that. It, <laughs> it was a crazy time. It was, it was an exciting year. Don Carlo is one of my favorites. I love the piece. I've never been involved with the production of it. Brett Palagato really rose to the occasion. Peter Volpe. Andre Carre was his name, right? Great work by the orchestra and the chorus. Major forces at work under Jonathan. And that traditional work hits my top 10, okay? <laughs> so I've got a Verdi and a Puccini, I guess, so far. Not in chronological order. Nick Muni's Faust is a favorite of mine. Aaron Wall, who did such a beautiful, beautiful job. And a guy named Dario Schmunk who was not German, I think he was Argentinian maybe, that I was led to. And I happened to be in Europe at the time. And I met him in Venice and we had a very good conversation. And then he gave me a tour of La Fenice because he was working there at the time and got me in and showed me around. And that was fun. But that was such a striking physical production. People still talk about that, Faust. And not to mention, that was the one and only time we got Yannick Nézé-Séguin. Exactly, exactly. Right? And of course, as you mentioned, Aaron Wall, who just so shockingly and tragically just passed away a few weeks ago. But I'll never forget that production. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, of course, Yannick. And then we couldn't touch him. That's right. I mean, it wasn't money or I mean, it wasn't anything like that. It's just that he was... Very much in demand. (laughs) Very, very much in demand. I'm so happy for him. I think it's so great that a good guy has done as well as he has and very proud. I'm a, I'm a dual citizen and my Canadian half is so proud that a Canadian has got the big job at the Met and Philadelphia and stuff. But yeah, that was, the orchestra loved him. Yes, indeed. And I kept being asked when you're getting him back and I kept saying, I'm trying, I'm trying. Stick Boy, another piece that did things for the company in all sorts of creative and community awareness ways and working with Shane Coison and Neil, your work, of course. My only disappointment was that we couldn't get it out of town. And it's one of the several disappointments I'm happy to share if if we want to go there. But it was too big for smaller communities, physically too big. And a couple of other plans fell through. And that was very disappointing to me because I think it was such a moving piece and such a good piece and so simply produced. They wouldn't say that backstage, but a simple concept that Rachel developed that really made it flow so well and so strongly and so movingly. I hope a company can do it again one of these days. I think it's just as timely as it ever was. And then with several of these, the school component behind them, Naomi's Road, Stick Boy, Flute, all had a school tour component to them that really took it out much farther than we could on the main stage. That's my list. That's a great list. (laughs) Thank you for sharing. Also, may I just say too, Jim, it's thanks to you that you gave me my first break conducting. And that was a production back in 2004 of the Three Penny Opera. Three Penny Opera. That's on my list. Did I skip Three Penny Opera? Yes. Uh, you didn't mention, but that's okay. I mean, it was with obviously legendary Morris Panich and Ken McDonald, who I just love those guys. They're so brilliant. We worked together a couple of years ago on The Overcoat. Right. And John Mann. 
Oh, John Madden. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Gene Stilwell and placing the orchestra over there on the side of the theater was great. People loved that. Why are we surprised? They all rushed down to look in the orchestra pit when there's an intermission, you know, in a regular setup. But they loved being able to watch the orchestra. And that was one of the first, well, one could describe as not an opera, if one cared. Yeah, that was your first, and there's been several since. Several since. So I'm really very, very grateful to you for taking that chance. And life has never been the same, and I just feel very, very lucky. So thank you. Thank oh. you for that. And thanks for taking the time to take us on this tour. As you mentioned these pieces, I had just a flood of memories come back. Yeah. You know, the artists and the shows and opera is such a rich, rich thing. And I think we are so lucky to be able to have this world. And thanks for your leadership for all of those years. Is there any last thought you want to share with our listeners, you know, looking ahead? I think that it maybe doesn't need to be said, but Stick with the organizations you love as much as you can during these times and appreciate how absolutely mind-boggling it must be to try to manage through this. Tom called me early, probably April or May or sometime, and said, well, have you ever dealt with anything like this? I said, no, nothing, anything like this. All of these folks all over the continent are doing the best job they can. And there'll be successes and there'll be flops, but stick with them financially in your heart as much as you can and flood those theaters when they reopen, whenever that time may be. Opera are going to have a really long haul because of venue size and participation size of the symphony and a chorus and a this and that. So welcome them back. Don't lose the habit of going out of the house. <laughs> and finally, to thank the community. I mean, it was a great run, great ride, and I'm still loving being here. And every once in a while, somebody will greet me on the street. Oh, you're that guy. And sometimes it's good. And sometimes, oh, it's you're the one who programmed this. <laughs> and I might say, yeah, that was me. <laughs> it's been a great experience. And thank you for talking to me about this. This has been such a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Jim. And hopefully I'll see you in the West End. Maybe we can have a cocktail at the Sylvia or something. Absolutely. I'm out and about carefully. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Join us next time when we'll get a behind the scenes glimpse into what goes on in opera in the rehearsal hall and from backstage. Two of Vancouver Opera's fabulous stage managers, Teresa Tsang and Marika Asbik Bruce will take us on a virtual tour and share some of their experiences from their unique perspective. We'd love to hear from you if you have any feedback or suggestions for upcoming guests. You can reach us via email at online at vancouveropera.ca. And don't forget to check out this episode's special features on our website at vancouveropera.ca forward slash offstage. This has been Vancouver Opera Offstage. I'm your host, Les Dalla. As always, you can keep up to date with Vancouver Opera at vancouveropera.ca, where you can sign up for our e-newsletter or follow us on social media. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.